This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to Captains with me, Sam Warburton. This is a podcast where I swap stories and compare notes about all things to do with leadership with some of the biggest names in sport. And we kick things off with an old friend and rival, former England rugby captain, Chris Robshaw. We were very much lambs for the slaughter, being heckled, all that kind of stuff. And, and that for me was darkest I ever got. I was dead behind the eyes for a long, long time. I never thought I'd play for England again, let alone captain them again. I became a recluse. I didn't want to leave the house. I wanted to draw the curtains. I remember going to the post office and I remember the post office is just going, why were you guys so shit? When I speak to youngsters now, I say the biggest thing that you need to have is resilience. In tough times, you need good people around you and you just need to hang on in there. Here we are. And thanks for listening to the very first episode of Captains. But before we get into my conversation with Chris, I just want to explain what this podcast is all about. So I was a captain from a pretty young age. I was 22 years of age when I first captain Wales. And I also captained the Lions twice, the first of which I was only 24, which was the youngest ever Lions captain. There were certainly things I learned along the way about leadership and I was far from the finished article and I'm still learning now, to be honest. And I want to share some of these insights with you. Growing up, I looked up to the likes of Paul O'Connell, Munster Irish, British and Irish Lions legend, Roy Keane from the iconic Manchester United era, and being a huge Spurs fan, I had a massive admiration for Ledley King. A lot of the skills and characteristics that I found out they displayed are things that we can all learn from. And I've certainly benefited from the practices that I learned as a captain in retirement and life post my playing rugby career. But let's get on to this episode with Chris Robshaw. I first played against him in 2012. We've swapped shirts and had many massive battles against each other in some huge games. But I always admired his diligence and his work ethic and his composure in the heat of battle. This is a really honest and open conversation with Chris. And we talk about being at the heart of the rivalry between Wales and England and the pressure that comes with it. We discuss about the scrutiny that comes with leading your nation. And Chris speaks really well about dealing with the fallout from the Rugby World Cup in 2015 where things really got on top of him. His story is one of resilience. I hope you enjoy it. Chris, it's actually great to see you without seeing you on a pitch where we're about to knock seven bells out of each other for a change. So no, thanks for coming on the podcast, mate. Good to see you. How are you doing? And you, yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, similar to yourself now, I've gone to the other side. I've, I've called it a day in the rugby <laughs> career. Uh, unfortunately, you get to the stage where unfortunately your body can't go anymore. I said when I finished playing, I disliked 80% of my career and only like 20% of it, which ruffled a few feathers, um, which I still stand by because a lot of it was the scrutiny of being captain. The moment you go below a 7 out of 10 game, for example, the guillotine comes down, you should be gone, someone's better than you, battling with injury, being away from family... The, the effect it had on your family when you're being publicly criticised and particularly being Wales captain in Wales, that was tough. And I found it very hard to escape. Did you enjoy captaincy or do you sometimes wish that you never had it? Both in honesty. Yeah. I do think would I have played more, what, longer in another couple of years if you didn't have that, like you said, that stress of captaincy and all that kind of stuff. And I think the enjoyable thing in captain is being able to put your mark on it and really put your mark on it because at the end of the day, yes, you have other leaders, but you're having that final say and you're you're kind of doing that. But yeah, look, don't get me wrong, there are definitely times where you think you played well, but England have lost the game and you get hammered and you get hammered and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, you know what, I'd rather just just play sometimes, just be out there playing. And and I think with Eddie, when Eddie came in post-World Cup and he said, look, there's a, there's a place in my team for you as a player, but not as captain. I almost said to him, thank God, you know what, I was so... I was, <laughs> I've had that conversation as well. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? I was like, you know what, I will happily yeah. support whoever's going to be and I will lead my yeah. the breakdown and all that kind of stuff and I'll be the best version of myself yeah. and uh, nothing will change for me. But I'm so happy I can just go out there and play. Because you know it's like when, when you're captain, you've trained well, whatever, there might have been an issue, you've got to go sort out that. Then you've got to go see the coaches and review things and then you've got to have a meeting about training tomorrow and what the plan is and say, okay. And then you're thinking about what's the team structure and the place you're going to play and okay. And later in the week, you're thinking about logistics and should we go here or should we do this and all this. And you know, as, as a player, you're like, I'm just going to go in and watch a film and watch Netflix or I'm going to go sit with my <laughs> yeah. Dan Cole and have a couple of biscuits and all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> yeah. 
But look, don't you, look, I loved it. I loved, to captain your country, and I'm sure, like you said, there, there were tough times, and don't get me wrong, there were some pretty horrendous times in, in the comebacks of World Cup or losing to you guys and, and all that kind of stuff, and you wouldn't wish that upon anyone. But those moments of being able to captain your country and to lead them at Twickenham and to be at the All Blacks and help inspire those younger players coming through and all that kind of stuff is incredible. And you know what? I wouldn't I wouldn't swap that for anything. So yes, there were tough times. Yes, would you have potentially played more? But how privileged were you to to have that position and to help shape the the national rugby inside into grassroots luxury and all that kind of stuff and you know what? It was incredible. I agree. It's, it's ups and downs. And I said, but the thing is, with that 20% that I said that I did enjoy, the 20% of enjoyment outweighs the 80% tenfold. It's worth going through all that to get the good bits. Like you say, be captain for a premiership winning side, beat the All Blacks. You know, that it's, it's worth it for those moments. So on this now, it's quite a big question I ask all our guests. So you can have a bit of time to think about it. But when I was young, I was lucky I had a skills coach, mental skills coach, sports psychologist, whatever you want to call it. And we came up with my captain's compass. And I had it as like a picture on my phone and stuff. I had to replace, obviously, all the northeast, southwest. And I replaced it with my four key principles to be a good leader and captain. If you had to design your own captain's compass now, what would be the four key principles that you would want to demonstrate as a good leader and captain? You know what I'd say now, which I probably wouldn't have said when I was younger, is empathy. Empathy and understanding of, of players. And it's a similar thing. And, and when I was a young captain as well, with, with England as well, and, and now I've had a kid, I probably didn't appreciate the, pre- not the pressure, but the, the, the separation from f- the guys from their kids and their families. Whereas, yeah. I don't know if you had kids when you when you played for Wales, but it's, it's very different when you're, your partner's at home and all that kind of stuff, you know. But when you've got your kids there and your family, things do change. And I probably didn't understand stuff like that as much. I, I would still base a lot of it on kind of work ethic, in terms of work ethic, but, yeah, nice. but also smart work ethic in terms of, yes, that might just be a, a team meal out. That doesn't necessarily have to be all on the walk bike for half an hour just yeah. to get it like there are there are different ways to get the best and there, there are so many different coaches now who coach differently they coach environments and all that kind of stuff to get the best out of people uh, which I think is hugely important and I think when when we were both captaining that wasn't in the game as much it was more about hard work and if you're not working hard mm. someone else is going to be working harder so they'll, they'll kind mm. of come into that environment yeah I'd, I'd say surround yourself with good people you, I got that people, yeah, definitely, yeah. You, you need it, and and as you know, captaincy and leadership can be a very lonely place. So surround yourself with good people, and then have an escape. Be able to park things, and I think as you got older, and as my shoulders got broader, my skin's got thicker, and you've been through the highs and lows of international sport and setback and written on papers and all that kind of stuff. Find out what works for you, and use it when you need to get away from yourself. Because I remember as a, as a young captain, I would. You'd have a bad game, you know what it's like, and you would drag that for the next four or five days. But then, unfortunately, that goes to your your partner and your family and your friends and the team. And as I got older, I'd be like, okay, until 12 o'clock that night, I can sulk and be as miserable as I like. But when I wake up the next morning, I parked it. And of course, it's easier said than done a lot of the time. But that was generally going to be my thing. And you learn that going out to, I live near Richmond Park, and taking the dog out there, and it was incredible. Leave your phone at home, just go out with your missus, have a chat, go see some friends for a pub lunch, all that kind of stuff, and forget about it. That's a great compass. Looking at your younger days then, I wasn't a captain at all when I was young. I was like the most introverted, shy kid. On the, I think it's the Myers Briggs. You have like the extrovert in one corner, introvert in the bot in the other corner. I was like extreme introvert. I didn't think I was cut out to be a captain at all. You captain Millfield at first first team level. Were you always the kind of person who was put in leadership roles? Was happy to be the leader, or was it something that you learned? Because it looks like from the outset that this was something you were probably destined to do. No, look. In, in all honesty, I was. I was very introverted myself. I was a shy kid. And even now when you go to things, I'm still a little bit that way. You have to kind of force yourself to kind of come out of your shell a little bit and, and almost turn yourself on. Like a lot of it didn't come naturally. And I think a lot of things 
like you said, you were put into a position and then you had to kind of step up, especially as a young captain. I think I captain Quinns when I was 23 years old and you, you were young as well. And what I found the toughest thing is having the hard conversations early on. Oh, yeah. When you had to tell one of your mates, like, that's not good enough. You let yourself down, you let the side down, all that kind of stuff. I remember in my head kind of playing over the conversations before doing it, before doing it, and like really plucking up the cards because then you know that they're going to go slack you off to the other mates. And, yeah. And it could be a very, very lonely place. And then when you get a bit older, you just do it because you've, you've been there and you've done it and you've got the experience and all that kind of stuff. And yes, it's never nice, but you learn it as part of the job. Yeah. But I think early on as a captain, that's what I really, really struggled with, those kind of tough conversations. Would that be the most difficult part of captaincy as a young age? I was going to say that because you hit the ground running with the Quins, Player of the Year awards, the Premiership, winning captain for the Premiership. You set the bar high quite young, so you would have had that respect naturally. What would have been the hardest thing then for you as a young captain trying to fit in at Quinns? Because a 23-year-old guy, you know, this bloke's there, 35, mm. you know, 12, 13, 14 years of senior. Was that the biggest challenge? Or if not, what was the biggest challenge of being a young captain in that Quinns team? Yeah, I, f- I found for myself early on, I wanted to learn from others as much as possible. Like I said, you, you kind of learn on the job and I wanted to learn from people who had been there and done it. So like, I was fortunate with um, Sean Fitzpatrick on a board, so I'd speak to him. Yeah. Lawrence Delalio was getting towards the end of his career and he was local to where I live, so we would have conversations. and all the, like Those kind of people, I love picking people's brains because I think you take something from them. And I remember taking something from someone and almost being laughed out of room because it's not you, it's not authentic. And then you yeah. say something else, you do something else, and it really resonates with people. And I think you can take things from other people, but you still got to put it in your own style. And I think for me as an early captain, especially with Quinns and, like you said, people with 10 years older than me, internationals, all that kind of stuff, it was very much a work ethic mentality that we were going to be the hardest working and that was going to be kind of a goal and I was going to be a first in, last out and all that kind of stuff. And early on, I captained very differently to how I captained at the latter stages of my career. It was very much stick-orientated. Any penalties we gave away were fitness-orientated. If you were late to meetings, it was fitness-orientated, but not just for you, for the whole squad. We were in it together. Whereas I think when I, I'd have, I did it for about four years then, and I did it two years before I left the club at the age of kind of 30 or 32, that kind of age. And it was very different because you had been there, similar to you, you'd had the international roller coaster of captain in your country, highs, lows, World Cups, all that kind of stuff. And you learn from it. You learn to treat people differently. Whereas I think when I was learning, it was very much, this is how we're doing it. Get on board or or don't kind of thing. Whereas I think as you, you get older, you learn that captaincy is so much more than that. It's about understanding people that this person is completely different to that person and all those kind of things. And uh, that took me time. And I think I got there in that first stage, but definitely those early couple of years were, were a struggle. God, I, I couldn't agree more. I remember... When I was young, so I was 22, 23 as a captain. And like after a game, the coach would say to me like, oh, what, what are we doing tonight? And say it was a seven-day turnaround, six-day turnaround. I go, no one drinks, stay in the hotel. No one goes out. Because I was like missed, I was like super pro. Yeah. I was always like that. Everyone's got to do what i got to do. And I remember it was about a year in, and I remember Gethin Jenkins, who obviously would have played against many times, he came up to me, he said, Warbs, he said, telling half the boys they can't drink is like me saying to you and I love chocolate by the way <laughs> me saying to you you can't have a bad dairy milk tonight after the game and I was like I know a bad dairy milk isn't as detrimental as a alcohol from a recovery perspective but just the principle of it I thought no he's right I can't just treat everyone how I want to treat myself everyone's different you have to put a little bit of trust in some boys to maybe be like you know what yeah you can have a couple but obviously you must turn up tomorrow for your medical on time, blah, 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 come back at whatever, one in the morning, but we're all in, we have a full recovery day tomorrow, but enjoy yourself responsibly. And when you actually give people a little bit more free reign or trust them or treat them individually, I found you get so much more back. And I cringe at my first couple of years as captain. I'm like, oh my God, I would have been awful. I think now, if I was playing now still, or say like you in my 30s, I would have been so much better because you've got so much more perspective and understanding of people. I do agree. I think that's one thing that, that people get wrong a lot. So England comes around. You're sort of young. You're still relatively young, 24, 25, getting capped for England. And then one cap in, you get named as captain. How did that call come? And what was your very first thought? Yeah, I mean, it was... It was, of course, out, out of the blue. Um, I'd worked with Stuart on, um, in the Saxons for, I think, a year before. 
or maybe a couple of years before that. So we we'd worked well together. We'd known each other pretty well and, and had a pretty good relationship. We went up to Leeds and we had kind of, as you know, you, whenever you go into the Six Nations or the autumn, whatever it be, you kind of, with England, you'd always meet two weeks before. So you'd have a week of training, weekend off, and then get into the game week. So we went up to Leeds and we just had a good training week. There was myself, Dylan, I think Tom Croft, Toby Flood, Charlie Hodgson, who were all kind of being spoken about and were kind of the core, core leaders who were, it was going to come from probably and then we came in that following Sunday and he said look we want, I want you to lead the side we're going to do it on a game by game basis and we're going to go from there and it was incredible I mean as you know leading your country there's no greater honour and this kind of smile kind of went over my face I was like geez, you're going to Captain England and I remember that kind of that first huddle so we, we then went out to train and as a young captain and, and for an English captain as well, you think, oh God, you have to be a Martin Johnson or a, like these type of like legends of the game and all, and all that kind of stuff. And then you forget, no, that's not what got you there. You have to be yourself. And I remember speaking to the guys in the huddle for the first time. I don't even know what I said. It was probably a lo- load of rubbish. <laughs> and, and Andy Farrell came up to me, who was our defence coach, and he captained Great Britain at the age, a young age, 18 or 20, something really young, a Wigan as well. And he just says, look, now relax. You've, you've had that moment, you've got that moment, you've yeah. been building up in your head. Now just do yeah. what you do. Speak the way you speak, train the way you train and lead the way you do. You don't have to do anything different than that. And that was building advice. And it was almost like, okay, now you can just, just get into it. But again, as, as captaincy and especially young captains, you need to have good people around you because I think people from the outside think a team is just run by a captain. I think with a captain, of course, you have that final say and you overview everything. But it's about having that trust in other people. And I think because I'd done it at Harlequins for a couple of years before, I'd built that kind of leadership group there around me. And it was important to have that with England, with a Dylan and a a Charlie Hodgson was there and a Tom Palmer and stuff like this who would take responsibility as well. And then you kind of dip in and out of it. I remember very similar. I thought a captain had to be like a big speaker. That was just your perception, I guess, when you grow Mm. up, isn't it? You see a rugby Mm. captain and... like. Speaking to Martin Johnson, you find out he wasn't actually a speaker. You just presume he is, but from the outset, that's what it looks like. But I, I said no to Warren Gatz when he asked me to do it, but he showed me a clip and we actually played New Boys and we won a penalty at the end of the game. And he just pointed at the top of the screen because he took me over to the like uh, analyst table, you know, where all the analysts sit. He said, play that clip for Sam. Play the clip, we won the penalty. And I just come like marching in for the top of the screen, just punching the air, celebrating, being aggressive. I was kind of like that, but anyway motivating the boys, picking the lads up off the floor, went to number 10, just discussed, you know, what the play was going to be, relay that to the boys and just crack on and play. But that's just what you do, you know? And he just stopped it and he went, that's leadership and that's what I want you to do. And I, that was like my moment where I was like, oh, right, yeah, okay, I might be able to do this. Because I was like, no, I don't want to do press. I don't want to speak in front yeah. of the lads. I'm not, I'm quiet. I just want to go out and bang people. Like, that's just kind of like my game, you know? I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to do all this captaincy stuff. And see, so it's quite refreshing to hear that, like you kind of approach it the same. It's so true, and I think a lot of captains. I speak a lot of Quinns guys and various other young young guys in in various setups, and a lot of players now don't want to be a captain, which is no. because they just want to they want to lead by the way they play, and again, they don't want to have that extra scrutiny or that extra pressure of having to deal with X, Y, and Z. Which, as you know, there's so much going on. Whether that be like you said, you build talking up to the players in the front. And you know what? You could say anything to a lot of those players and they're just ready to go. Yeah. It's almost like controlling players a lot of the time, especially in an international setup. It's just like, we're ready for this. They're ready. We've prepared well. It's just, let's go out there and do it kind of thing. Welcome back to Captains with me, Sam Warburton, and my guest, former England rugby captain, Chris Robshaw. With your England captaincy, you, you boys had a, a hell of a record, actually. You had a great win ratio. I think you came second four years in a row. Uh, you beat us four years in a row in the Six Nations as well, from 2014, 15, 16, 17, and you were captain for a good few of those games as well. You had a good hold on Wales, actually. You had a really good win ratio. Who were the key members in your England group that sort of took you through that period? Even though you didn't win... You still had a really successful win ratio and still a successful England team. Who was in that group and how did they help you? Yeah, we we did. And look, unfortunately, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about some of those big games. We, we couldn't quite get you on. Um, and for us as well, we were we couldn't quite close it out. And a lot of the time it's frustrating. You look 
back now. And if we had had exactly those tournaments in the point system is today, we would have won probably two of those tournaments and stuff like that. But that that's how sport is. And mm. I think what's brilliant about sport is one bounce of the ball can cost you a grand slam. It can cost you this. And if you're slightly off one game, and, and that's why the rivalry is great and all that kind of stuff. In terms of leadership, of course, we, we speak about Owen Farrell, obviously leading the guys at the moment. And you'll know of working with him with Alliance. From a young age, he's been incredible. His ability to drive a team forward, to get the best out of the people around him. He knows where he wants to take the side. And basically, you need to get on board because he's that well-driven and he understands the game so well. Uh, Brad Barrett was incredibly defensively uh, in terms of he would boss that defence. And I think when someone like Brad was speaking about his defence and his ability to put his body through it, I mean, he would come off battered, blooded, everything else, injuries, but he would still put his body there. He was he was phenomenal. We had someone like Jeff Parlin run attack. Um, sorry, lineouts, not attack. Dan Cole was phenomenal. Again, in terms of scrummaging. And I remember, I remember actually, we were having this leadership group and, and you know what it's like with the Six Nations. If you lose your first game, you're up against it. You're playing catch-up straight away. You're, you're probably, well, you're definitely not winning the Grand Slam and you're unlikely to win unless you're hoping someone coughs up, basically. And you need, you need to have, rack some points up. And I remember it was all the coaches in like a Monday session. All the coaches were in there, Stuart, Andy Farrell, Roundtree, Mike Cat, And then I think it was myself, Tom Wood, Owen, Brad... And there would have been a couple of hours. And then there was one other person. There was Prince Harry. So we were we were kind of... Because Prince Harry loved his rugby and he loved the RFU and he would always come down and watch. And every now and then he would turn up. You would see kind of black Range Rovers going around and security guards were like, okay, something's happening today. I'd love it if he started talking about breakdown and speed of ball and stuff. <laughs> oh, lads, why don't you do that? You know, you know what, with him, obviously he had had that leadership role in the army, which again, it wasn't... It was very different... As I'm sure with you, you've been to many army camps and there's been so many similarities between the army and navy and all that kind of stuff and rugby and teamwork. And there has been a lot of things. So he was always very interesting to chat to, whether that be for leadership. And of course, his journey was very different to any any of us had ever been close to. But no, yeah, I, I'd be uh, fabricating something, I think, if he had said something. Did you know what sort of captain you wanted to be at a young age? Or did it take you time to figure it out? Yeah, it, it did take a time. But I think you always look at others and... Like I said, I always wanted to learn from others. And I think, from, like I said, from an English point of view, you look at Martin Johnson, who won the World Cup, and, and nothing can beat that. Nothing can beat that. And you think about the aura he had around the game, and even you see him now and his coaching and stuff like that is phenomenal. I wanted to be someone who... The biggest thing I wanted to do is deserve the shirt as a player, first and foremost. I wanted to serve the player and not just be because you're captain, you're in the team. I wanted to be the best player there, first and foremost, and you couldn't kind of argue with that. And I also wanted to be a, a captain who wouldn't ask someone to do something I wouldn't do myself. So if I was asking you to do that extra work, no, I would have done that as well. And that is my kind of my biggest things. But no, I, I never knew. And I think it's probably similar to you, you always learn. You learn from, I remember kind of, we'd watch stuff about Wales and how you would interact with referees and and then you're, you're kind of monitoring that and you would see how other players, someone like Rory Best did it as well and the kind of mannerism. And you're always learning, whether that's kind of letting people know you're learning from them, but you always want to try and gain as much knowledge as possible uh, because when you're into it, and it's not until you look back now I've properly retired, you truly reflect in it and think, you know what, that was that was a good time. What I found really tough, actually, was when I captained both England and Harlequins at the same time yeah. because you didn't get a break oh, yeah. from it. I, I remember we went to, uh, unfortunately, we, kept, we came down to the Millennium where we were, we were chasing a Grand Slam in 20, was it 12, 13? 13, yeah. 13, yeah. And, and we, we had gone with hope. We, we kind of hoped we would win the game. and we, we probably didn't, as a young team in which we were, we probably didn't appreciate the fire we were walking into. Because I, I look back to that game and you look at the first half and, and even now it's one, and you remember the losses more than the wins, I find. And you think there's a couple of key moments there which just go went us and just a little lost a little bit of momentum. And all of a sudden, the score gets away from you. And we were battered, like, <laughs> as I'm sure you know, the Welsh the Welsh didn't let us forget about it for, for some time. And, and that was when social media was quite hot and all that kind of stuff. And the press really got into us. And, and look, rightly so, we, we went great. And you guys deserve, deserve to win. And on Sunday night, we went back to the club. Oh, so went home, put our England bag down, picked up my Harlequins bag. And on Monday morning, I was in a Harlequins gym. And I remember in that session, just I was going through some weights. And I said to the weights guys, like, I've got to go. 
and literally just put them away. So I didn't even put them back on the shelf. I just said, I've got to go. And literally walked out of the gym, walked off to a coffee shop, just on my own, had a coffee, just mentally I hadn't processed it. Mentally it was still eating me away. Uh, and that was the biggest thing with my captaincy in terms of what I've gone through in my career, to being able to deal with that better now than I probably dealt with it at the time. You, you've mentioned it a little bit. I remember that game vividly, that 2013 game. And that was the single best atmosphere I have ever played in front of. And that includes other Grand Slam finishes, um, Lions tours. It was just like nothing I've seen before. And I remember being at the halfway line. And at this moment in time, I think I was on about 30, 40 caps. So I was fairly experienced and played obviously in the Principality a load of times. I remember it was halfway line. I remember looking at uh, Owen Farrell, who was about to take kickoff. I remember actually looking at yourself. I remember looking at Joe Launchbury. I remember looking at quite a few of the players. And I remember thinking, shit, I haven't experienced this before. This is blowing me away. I wonder what it's like for the England lads. You know, as as a player, I loved them. You know, I loved going into that kind of, that Coliseum-type atmosphere. It got your juices going. And like you said, that that day, I remember we were on your line. And I literally couldn't hear the guy next to me. It was it was that type of thing and vice versa. When we were defending our line, we literally couldn't hear each other. And and after that game, we actually started training whenever we'd come and play you guys down there or thinking we'd go into a big atmosphere. Blare out on speakers in kind of indoor training things, crowd noise, whistles, all that kind of stuff. So I you have that, to get used yeah. to it. Yeah. For, I wonder if that was game. genuine. I heard you boys did that during sessions. Yeah. Yeah. So when we when we'd come to you guys and when we go we went to Ellis Park, they were the two times we did it. I, th- I thought you'd say that about loving it playing there because it's like if someone says, "Oh, what time you face a hacker?" It's like, well, like they think you're going to be scared or you don't like playing away from home. It's like they're just blokes. Like you know, not, what, what I think the home team does. It doesn't intimidate England. I know it doesn't intimidate yeah. England, but. What it does is it just lifts the home team massively. That's what home advantage is. It just lifts the home team. Away teams love that atmosphere. I was always like horribly anxious before a game. I'd wake up on Saturday, say if I was playing you boys, my eyelids open up, I'd be like that, match day England. And I'd go down and have breakfast, I'd be pushing porridge on my plate for 20 minutes and I'd hibernate back in my room for three hours, come back down, have some lunch, push food around a plate for another 20 minutes, hibernate back in my room. But I used to think I'm not, nervous for one minute of playing once I'm playing I'm playing that's like what I'm good at I'm in my comfort zone but why do I feel like this if I feel so comfortable when I'm playing what were you like on match days were you quite a relaxed character were you did you like to hide away did you like to socialize yourself and be with the boys how did you approach match day and what were you like yeah so for me I was a, a big believer in my preparation I believed if I prepared well I was confident in my abilities whereas I think if I hadn't trained well so if I had if I'd had a perfect week of training, trained really well, I was relaxed on a Friday, I could have some food with the guys, I'd watch films, might play some cards, stuff like that to almost distract yourself, which I found quite important. Whereas I thought if I'd been injured or had a little knock early in the week and I probably haven't trained until Thursday or Friday, I was really nervous. I was really stressed about, am I going to be okay? Have I done enough in the week? Have I ticked enough boxes, really? And that, that gave me a bit of anxiety. Game day, I was kind of, okay, I, if I slept okay, for me, I loved to have a bath the night before a game. I would always have a, like an Arnica bath to help me relax and I would try and just watch a cheesy <laughs> film and just try and not think about it. And I would always, in the bath, every before every game I ever played, I would go over every move in my head. I would go over all the moves we wanted to do, the first plays we wanted to do, the lineouts we wanted to do. And then I'd read my notes just to make sure I'd tick everything off and kind of, yeah, I know, because I always thought... Not knowing your role is inexcusable. Yes, you might miss a tackle, you might drop a ball, that's fine. But if you muck up a play, a key play, that's that's a non-negotiable. And then kind of game day came around. And for me, game day was, yeah, you were so nervous. Like if you didn't sleep well, you'd be like, have I slept enough? Have I not? Am I going to be fresh enough? And it was always that bit waiting in the hotel, especially like a five or seven o'clock game. If you can't sleep in the day, you'd always try and nap. You'd always be stressed, like I said, if you could get, if you slept well, you could have a bit of food and you're on a bus straight away, it was perfect. Because then you get to the stadium and you're into it. But I always found that morning of a game just waiting around the hotel because you're not like laughing and joking. And I've got to play with Danny Kerr in a lot of time, who's a very jovial character. And even before the biggest games, it's like he's not worried. He, he is worried, he is stressed, but he's just relaxed with it and his mannerisms and that rubs off on guys and it's infectious. And for him, he knows that being that gets the best out of him. And it's kind of trying to understand how 
again, it comes back to that captaincy that some guys can be like that, but they're not mucking around. That's just their character and that's how they get the best. Yeah. And there's other guys who will sit in the corner, look at the floor and not move for about 20 minutes before we talk and then go. And it's, it's understanding the difference and what gets the best out of people. Yeah, so it was 2015. You boys were coming back to Cardiff after the defeat two years before. And this game was being built up massively. And I didn't realise what was going on in the tunnel, uh, genuinely as a home captain. And I saw after the game and I was being asked about it, oh, what were you guys doing in the dressing room? And it was only afterwards when I saw the highlights that you boys were having a standoff and you got praised for it you wouldn't go out onto the pitch what was happening from your perspective yeah it was um like you said there was there was so much built being built up we come back to the millennium principality after we we got a bit of a hammer in last time we were there and as you can imagine the media were after us the press were after us, social media all this kind of stuff and and in our camp i don't i don't know where it came from but we were told the welsh team wanted us to be on the pitch and you know what it's like when you're on the pitch and keep you there. The lights were going to go down. They were going to bait you and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, 10 seconds can feel like 10 minutes. It's that type of environment. So we were like, you know what? We're going to try and get a bit of control back. We're going to try, damn it, kind of limit the time we're going to be on the pitch. So we were like, look, so everything the ref asked us to do, we we're like, we're going to take our time. So they, they, you know what it's like, the touch charge will come knock on your thing, say, okay, you got 30 seconds. We would... We'd be like, oh, okay, whatever, yeah, we're fine. We'll do our talks and stuff. Then, like, it's time to go. We'll be like, no, we're just waiting. So we get, and then we came into the tunnel. And then I remember it was Jerome Garces, a French referee. And we were like, no, we're just going to wait here. We're going to wait until we see them before we go. And he was like, okay. Again, he he he, he didn't really know what was going on either. And, I, and honestly, I don't know if we really knew what we were doing. We just wanted to get a little bit of control back. We wanted to offset you guys just a little bit to take you out of your comfort zone. We didn't want to... You know what it's like. When you're at that level, it's about mind games. It's about this person saying this and just how can we get a little bit of control and a bit of power back? Because, again, we were coming into the lines then. We were coming there and we didn't want to go in smoothly. We wanted to take a bit of control back and we didn't want you guys to have it all your way. And we just thought, you know what, we're just going to... We're going to stay here and wait. And until we see them, we're going to stay here and wait. And Jerome Garcia was like, do you want to go? And we're like, no, we'll wait. And then I think, I can't remember. We probably weren't there that long, but it felt like a long time. And eventually he's like, I would guarantee they come if you go now. And I said, okay, we'll go. Uh, and then we, we eventually went on a pitch and we came. And I remember actually, we ended up winning that game, which was great for us. And of course, the way it started. But I think we went 10 points down in about the first 10 minutes. Falatal did an incredible pick through the scrum and oh, an incredible yeah, offload. And I was thinking, geez, we've just done this, this kind of standoff to try to get power and control and all that kind of stuff. And we've had a, a pretty bad start. But yeah, luckily we won and it kind of worked out for us. That was good captaincy. Did you guys have anything planned? Were you planning to leave us on a pitch? Or again, you hadn't heard? No, but we just wait. I just, as a captain, I would have been in the change room and I always, I always say to our fitness coach, mate, give me, um, give me three minutes and give me a two minute warning. So he'll go, right, Warbs, three minutes. So on three minutes, I know I right, get the lads in because it always takes a minute to get the lads in. Then he'll normally say two minutes. I'm still trying to get the lads in. And then you end up having, by the time they all assembled, you have one minute 30. So myself and maybe a couple of senior players will speak. And that was it. Yeah, so when I watched it after the game, they made the camera was really close on our players, then went really close to you. So it made it look like you were like five metres away. Mm. But in the tunnel, people don't know, you, we're actually about like 30, 40 metres <laughs> away. So it looks like we're having literally a standoff. So they did a good job on the TV, but I was oblivious to it. I had absolutely genuinely no idea. I wouldn't do that to Chris anyways. So. It's always nice to spice up those games. They always need it. What was your best moment as captain? If you could relive one moment again, country or club, what would be your one moment? It's, it's tough. I, look, I think it's hard. I mean, I think from a club point of view, winning a premiership with them as, as captain, I'd support in the club as a kid. I'd come through the academy since the age of 17. To lift a trophy, something they had never, ever done at Twickenham, I, you can never forget that. It was It was an incredible moment. I think there, was, there were a number from an international point of view but leading them out at Twickenham for the first time. It was actually against, it was against the Welsh. You guys beat us, unfortunately. But leading them out at Twickenham for the first time, because my first two games as captain were away. We were away in Murrayfield, and then we were away in Rome. And then to lead them out, sing the national anthem at Twickenham for the first time, something I dreamt about as a kid and something 
that as a kid I would sing the anthem, I'd see it on TV watching it at home and you would sing there with pride. So to have that moment, it was hard to top that. I think we swapped jerseys that game. We swapped jerseys we a couple of times. That could have been did. one of the games that we swapped jerseys, yeah. Yeah, no, we, look, I've, I always admire you, Sam. Uh, and honestly, playing against you, I knew I always have to be at my best to try and get one over on you or, or your team. It was it was a great battle. And I always thought, like you said, we were at similar ages and similar kind of phases of our thing. And I've, I've got a couple of things framed. And actually, have, I've got your 50th shirt. I haven't sold it, so don't worry. Uh, it's, it's still here. <laughs> it maybe be worth much anyway. May, maybe if I come on hard times in a couple of years, you might see it on eBay. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's one of the things. Like I've got yourselves, Khaleesi's, McCaws. Oh, nice. Yeah, some incredible, incredible flankers over the years. What would be some of the lows then of being England captain? Yeah, look, in, in all honesty, it was that World Cup, the 2015 World Cup, where obviously we'd gone in and I always say that World Cup was the highest point I've ever had an England shirt leading the team at Twickenham opening the ceremony all that kind of thousands of people there as we got off the bus all that kind of stuff to two weeks later a decision I had to make went wrong losing to you guys to then going to Australia losing against that having a press conference after I remember crossing past with you and you and Warren, as you guys came out, and we were obviously you guys were happy, and we were kind of went in myself and Stuart, and the following week as well, similar with Checker, and I think it was Hooper at the time. We were ghosts. We we were ghosts, kind of going in, and we were we were very much lambs to the slaughter. You remember how big that room was? A hundred, two hundred, kind yeah, of media yeah. outlets, cameras flashing, being heckled, all that kind of stuff. And and that for me was the darkest I ever got. I was dead behind the eyes for a long, long time. I was going through the motions. I was being written about in the front and back of papers. Um, I never thought I'd play for England again, let alone captain them again. To to do all that was horrendous. And I I remember kind of waking up. That was the darkest it had ever got. And it put huge pressure on my family, my loved ones, my friends, and all that kind of stuff. And what was really important for me at that point was that my friends and family were brilliant. But they hadn't experienced what it was like. And you know what it's like when you go through that. You're in a fog. You, you can't see clear. You think everyone's looking at you and scrutinise you and, and all that kind of stuff. And I remember after we lost to Australia, and I had an email from Sean Fitzpatrick that just said, look, nothing anyone can do or say at this point is going to make you feel better. But a sun will come up again. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be next week. It might not even be next month. But it will come up again and you will be okay. And I think with a lot of these things, sometimes you just need a bit of time. You need a bit of time to go through things. You need to grieve. You need to mourn. And I did. And I remember we actually, when we played you guys at Twickenham, it was the first game back in the Six Nations. Again, we had been on the road twice. It was a middle game. And as you can imagine, everything was coming up about that game. The emotions, there was still a lot of the squad who were involved in that game. It was all, is it about revenge? And of course, behind closed doors, it was for us. It was all about revenge and making amends and all that kind of stuff. And we just about won. And I think George North literally merely had stepped on the line and luckily we escaped. We won, won a game. And we're doing a lap of honour that game. And I just broke down in tears. I just broke down in tears and I, I just had to go in and change it. I could I didn't want people to see me. I, I didn't deal with it in the right way. I went and changed it and I literally cried for about 15 minutes. And I remember a lot of the England side... Was relief? Really, exactly. It just, came, it just came out. It just came out of me. Relief, yeah. And I remember a lot of the England guys and Farrell and Haskell and all the, a lot of the guys who'd been there and done it saying we didn't realise how much it actually affected you because I didn't share it. I bottled it all up. I didn't deal with it in the right way. And it was almost like a bit of a bit of closure. And of course, we then went to Australia and won that series in the summer, which was kind of a yeah. bit of closure towards that year. But yeah, that was that was definitely the toughest period I've had as a as a player in, in my whole professional career. I remember I was under a massive amount of stick as a captain, very similar to yourself. And obviously, you know, obviously I got sent off, which cost us arguably the World Cup final. So I I felt that enormous responsibility that I lost that's the World Cup um, four years before so I sort of went through that and I remember I played a game against New Zealand about a year later and I had a really good game and I was, I was under the pump a little bit people were sort of saying I shouldn't be playing and stuff I had a, I had a really good game and I remember it was like the 60th minute like I remember looking up at the stadium clock and I won a turnover for the team kicked towards the side the, the touch we had a line out and I was walking to that line out and nobody in the world would know I was actually crying walking to that line out Nobody would know, so they're calling the line out, so we're walking there, crowd are cheering us, you know, people cheering my turnover and that. And it was just relief that I had a good game. And for a week, finally, people could just get off my back mm. and I could just enjoy playing well. 
And because people see, I've been like walking the dog after like a loss as a captain and say you haven't played your best game. I, mean, I say this story and it's true. I have a walk on the dog and like my wife would be like, how long are you going to be? And I say, well, I-, I might be 20 minutes, I might be an hour. It depends how many people stop me for a post-match debrief. Because they just want to talk, everyone just say, oh, look, Sam Warburton, oh, it's Chris Robshaw, I'll ask him at the game. I remember these builders, I walked past these builders, I hear them, I could hear them muttering my surname. I was like, oh, they're going to ask me something. So I walk past them and they see you on probably like a Sunday morning after being revered on the TV and they go, one of them just shouted, oh, you're living the dream, but... And I was like, I know he means it as a compliment, but I was like, oh. In my head, I'm thinking, I've just been given like a probably a three out of ten in the paper, being told I shouldn't be captain, not going to be captain. Up to my balls in painkillers, I'm in so much pain. I've got a scheduled shoulder up in a few months' time, so I'm going to be out for the summer. Going to be away from the family for a few weeks on a tour. I'm like, I'm not living the dream, mate. Like, this is not, actually, this is not easy at all. But they only, people only see the 1% of when we play for England or Wales, which is 10 games a year for two hours, 20 hours a year. It's, it's nothing. It's a fraction. But that's what people see. They don't see all the bits that you take home with you. In those losses, like, say, in, in the World Cup, you got knocked out. What were you like on those days off? And how did you escape from being England captain because I imagine it was just so all-consuming you just couldn't get away from it yeah post that I, I became a recluse I didn't want to leave the house I wanted to draw the curtains we we live in a like I said in Wandsworth which was quite a, a rugby-ish area as well I remember going to the post office just to post something and I remember the post office just going why were you guys so shit and I was like <laughs> wow okay I was like literally just post a letter I know. And, and like I had a lot of those moments, a lot you of those escape. moments which I I couldn't escape, and I felt like, and I think once you go through those moments, you like I said that fog gradually clears. It takes time, but it does gradually clear. And a lot of people were there for me, and I remember at the club. I was I was going through the motions. I was good enough to play, and I was getting through games and all that kind of stuff. But I wasn't I wasn't enjoying it for a long, long time. But it took me it took me a, a really long time to get through that. And look, it's. It is a scar I'll always wear. Whenever we speak about World Cups, there's there's always that shame that will that will live with me for that, and which of course will be part of it. But I think with that, you you must learn, you must grow, and you you can't just have that that black hole in you. There aren't many players out there in in any sport or any in rugby in particular who haven't had the success without the failure. Whether we talk about it as much, but there's there's still something there which has driven them on. And for me, it's about helping people with that journey. If I can, big time. There's, there's no, no one's had a career on an upward trajectory. There's always been highs and lows. I actually remember doing an interview on that. Somebody asked me about your, your decision to go for the corner, and I thought I still do think you got really unfairly um, criticised for that. Because I used to say to the players before big games, like the bravest team will win. Those who don't go into their shell, we attack the opposition, take chances. The bravest team will win. I thought it was a massively brave decision to go for the corner and nobody knows whether it's the right or the right or wrong decision unless you're in that inner circle on the field because you've got a feel for the game and, for example, how successful your scrum or your maul is. I thought the error, and I'm not digging out anyone from England, I didn't think the error was going for the corner at all. I thought that was the correct decision, actually. The wrong decision was to throw at the front. So I think the line-up caller made the wrong call. When you make those calls to go to the corner, was that a call you made by yourself or is there players on the field that you will look to and you sort of make that decision together? Yeah, look, I, th- I think as captain, whatever happens, it's on you. It's on you and you could have been comfortable with that decision. I think, And I think that's the biggest thing that regardless of what happens, whether it be that decision, future decisions, whatever it be, if you're the captain, can you sleep at night because that, that's your call? And I think that's the biggest thing for me. I was captain of that side and I take full responsibility for that. And like you said, it, it it's not on anyone else and, and I don't want it to be portrayed that way. But look, it, it's one of those things that, as you know, when you have a bad moment in a game, goes over in your head a, a lot and a long, long time. And, and that went over in my head and, and it still does whenever we speak about the game, whenever we look back on it, whenever social memes get made and, and all that kind of stuff because you, you can't escape it. But hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> and like I said, if we had known we could, you could draw and all that kind of stuff, I mean, when I look back at that game, I think how do we concede kind of 10 points towards the end and you look at little moments like that which, which go against you. So there's, there's more to it, I feel, than just one thing. I remember going to the press, well, I was in the shower uh, after I got sent off in the semi and I didn't have to do the press conference, but the press officer came to me and said, oh, Sam, it's 
press conference, but obviously you don't have to do it. For, so for context, for those who don't know, I got red carded after 17 minutes, which cost us the game. Like, more, you know, good chance it cost us the game. But I remember thinking, no, no, I'll do it. i got to face the music. And I remember walking to that press conference with, with our head coach, and that, I was just absolute dread, uh, embarrassment. I thought, like shame almost. I remember thinking like the David Beckham 98 mm. uh, World Cup, you know, thinking everyone was going to hate me. And I, I just thought my career was just going to crumble from that moment. I remember that walk and it felt like the longest walk to that press conference. And it was horrible. What was going through your mind when you were walking towards those press conferences in the moments after those losses to Wales and Australia? Yeah, they, they, were, they were some of the toughest things I had to do. Especially the, the Australia one, because that was, we were out. I remember just thinking, just don't cry in front of them. Just kind of just hold it together. Just, just you and Stuart just need to get through this. It was, it was horrendous. It was honestly, it was the toughest thing in my professional career going and doing that press conference. And and like I said, I I remember of course seeing seeing their checker and stuff come out and they're smiling and happy and all that kind of stuff. And 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 that was you had no feelings. You you had nothing, you had nothing to give, and and when people say, and I was I was I was dead. I see I see photos of myself in that period, not just that moment, but in that kind of month or six weeks, eight weeks after, and I don't even I don't recognise myself, I don't recognise my eyes. You you look very very different, uh, and that unfortunately was the start of that moment. I remember when I got sent off. I'm only really saying this because they're quite close parallels. And um, we were in New Zealand, so obviously I was on the other side of the world. So Twitter had only just kicked off, and obviously I was sensible enough not to go on Twitter. So you're kind of away from it all. I came home, and there was this program on um, on the BBC, and it was showing, like, and it was 9 o'clock in the morning or 8.30 in the morning, and it showed our national stadium with 65,000 people in watching us. And my parents were like, oh, let's watch it. Because I went over the house. And I was like, oh, no, no, I don't want to watch this. Because they were still proud of the fact that, mm. you know, Captain Wales was semi-final. But I watched this. I was watching it, you know, like unwillingly, but I watched it. And then it showed Evan's reaction when I got sent off. And it showed, the camera sort of panned down. It showed the silence across the stadium. And then I remember watching it. And I did the same. I, I was in my lounge, my parents' house, in their lounge. And I remember I just burst out crying. And I had to leave the room. Because I suddenly, it was just like, it dawned on me, like what I did uh, and and how bad it was and what, you know, what, how I cost Wales so so costly in a World Cup. But then like, I had, you were on about when the fog lifted. My my fog lifted about a month later when I was driving to training. I got it and I was close to my granddad. And I was driving to training and I looked down at a traffic light. My phone lit up and it was my dad who texted me and he just said, granddad's died. And I spent like every Friday night with my granddad growing up and you know, we used to watch Super League with him and boxing. And I remember going in to see him, you know, every day before he went and eventually he passed away. And then I did an interview and they asked me about the red card and it was a bit like dark, but I just said, well, I lost my granddad this morning and it made me realise there's more important things in life to worry about than a game of rugby. Even though I'm getting, it's probably one of the most controversial things that's happened in World Cup history, family and health is way more important. And that's when almost the fog lifted off me. Even though I was in another separate fog because I lost my granddad, suddenly sports and the perspective of losing a family member, which I was lucky I hadn't lost a family member, not not in a, at a, an age where I was aware of what was going on. So I'm quite lucky to only experience that at 22, 23 with my granddad. But that kind of put it in perspective for me. Was there a moment after that World Cup where you could feel the fog lift or your perspective had, had finally changed? I think in terms of that that instant fog was, I remember we went to Exeter again. It was probably about eight weeks after. And we played down there and our head coach, John Kingston at the time, and just said, look, enough's enough. We know it's terrible. We know it's horrendous. We've been here for you. We're here for you, but we need you now. And I just thought, you know what it is. Like, I still wasn't quite back, but I was like, you know what, I need to... I'm now impacting others. I'm impacting the rest of my team. And I, I always wanted to be a team person, a team first, all that kind of stuff. And I'd have gone against that sub, well, subconsciously. And that was a massive moment for me. And I, I actually played really well. It was the best game I, pl- I played kind of probably since since the World Cup and stuff. And sometimes you need hard truths. Yeah. He, he could see I'd had my grieving, I'd had my moment... But in terms of proper closure, it's something I'll always have. But then we went to Australia that summer. We won our first game. The second game was my 50th cap. Uh, we ended up winning an incredible game in, in Melbourne in the rain. I think we won like 
15-8 or so in defensive efforts. I was man in a match and, and Jason Leonard, a good friend of mine, presented me with my silver cap with England. You get a little silver cap when you get to 50 appearances. And all the boys just chanted my name in the change room. We had beers and we just celebrated. And you, you know what? I was like, this, this is it. I, I'm kind of clear now. Uh, and like I said, it's, it is something that will always be part of me and I won't always speak about it with World Cups and stuff. But for me, that moment was... The, the fog has gone. That's nice. And I was, I was so, because again, it was, it was such big moments against you guys in the Six Nations and of course them who, who were the team that ended it. So to go there and beat them 3-0 in a series and to win my 50th there and all that kind of stuff was, and see how pleased the guys were for me as well, uh, was just incredible. As we're wrapping up now, you've obviously gone through so much. If a young Chris Robshaw, you know, you're, you're a coach now, imagine hypothetically you're a coach now of Queen's Academy and there's a young Chris Robshaw walks through the door and goes, Chris, what advice would you give me about captaincy? What would you give him? When I think, to, and I speak to youngsters now, I say that the biggest thing that you need to have is resilience. For me, it's you're, you're going to have some incredible times, but unfortunately there's going to be some tough and testing times along the way. And there's, there's no player and there's no sports person who's gone far without setbacks and and I, I had a, a fantastic saying from Justin Langer obviously the Australian cricketer and like I said I, I like to listen to podcasts and stuff and he said in in tough times you need good people around you and you just need to hang on in there and, and that's what it is a lot of the time you just need to hang on in there because the tough times do pass and you need to make sure you're still around you're still in a good place and all that kind of stuff to make sure that when they pass you're ready to kind of keep on going so yeah I'd say to a younger myself like resilience is key like work hard enjoy the moments but when you go through those tough times just just hang on in there because they will pass and there will be good times again that's a nice point to finish actually and I was asked recently as well that's why I smiled when you said it somebody asked me the same question I said you can be the most talented you can work hard momentarily but I said the ones who get to the very top are the ones who are resilient because they're the ones who just refuse to be defeated and just keep going you, there's gonna, it's never a straight upward trajectory there's going to be ups and downs along the way but it's the most resilient boys or girls who play sport who make it to the top because it's not easy there will be hiccups but those who just keep on going and refuse to be denied make it so honestly Chris awesome player love playing against you and you've been a fantastic guest. So honestly, thanks so much for jumping on the pod. It's been a pleasure. Well, I appreciate it. I look forward to sharing a beer or a dairy milk at some point with you. So. <laughs> we'll do both. I love, we'll I've, do, I've got a huge sweet teeth we'll as well. Town. So I would, I would happily we'll do that. We'll go to town, go dairy milk, add a beer. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Chris. Cheers, mate. Thanks so much to Chris for speaking openly about his time captain England. It just shows how much pressure could be heaped on one person when things don't go as planned. But like we touched on at the end, resilience is key and the importance of being authentic and getting good people around you is absolutely vital. If you want another sports podcast to listen to, check out the George Groves Boxing Club. Each week, the former world champ and his mate Deck tackle the topic from the world of boxing. Everything from training to nutrition, from contract negotiation to commentary, and they've had some of the biggest names in the sport as guests along the way. Make sure you go back and check out their episodes with Ricky Hatton and George's great rival, Carl Froch. Go and search the George Groves Boxing Club wherever you get your podcasts. A reminder, you can get in touch with any thoughts or questions by emailing us at captains at crowdnetwork.co.uk or by using the hashtag CaptainsPod on Instagram or Twitter. You can also find us on LinkedIn by searching for Captains with Sam Warburton. Finally, make sure you listen to episode two of Captains, where my guest is English cricketing legend and World Cup winner Heather Knight. That is available now. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.